0: if you would please take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. We're beginning chapter 11 uh, this morning. It is this final section of 2 Corinthians in which Paul directly addresses his opposition in Corinth. And if you have been wondering in previous weeks... Uh, why we have been reading through the book of Hosea, or perhaps even this morning you wondered why God has given the language that He's given to the book of Hosea, why it is so sharp, some might even say offensive at sometimes. Our text this morning will highlight that for us. The book of Hosea was written because God's people had wandered from the gospel. They'd wandered from the Lord, and that is a very serious thing. And Paul here this morning is afraid for his congregation in Corinth that they might be drawn aside, be drawn away from Jesus Christ to serve a false gospel. And so this morning we look at First Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive another spe- a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, our God. We pray this morning that you would open up your word to us. That as we study it, we would see you and your character. We would see the wondrous work that the Lord Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And we would love you more and more. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. So this morning as we pick up this text... Paul is continuing to directly address his opponents in Corinth. He addresses them in very sharp terms, holding nothing back. And he does this because the gospel is at stake. It is actually far easier than we would expect to be led astray from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul is aware of this. And so he speaks sharply about his opponents, he draws the Corinthians back to Jesus, and he describes for us what is the difference between the true and a false gospel. So the very first thing that I would like us to see from this text is that Paul tells us that a false gospel is not loving. That is an aspect of a gospel that's false. Now, this is important because far too often we are addressed by those who peddle a false gospel in the name of love. They tell us that it's not loving to believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. That it's not loving to believe in the authority of the Bible. That it's not loving to tell others that they must be saved. But Paul says... In reality, it is the false gospel that lacks love. Now, remember the context that brings us to this point. Paul has been converted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He has gone on a sent mission to the Gentiles, sent by Jesus. And then after going to many places in which the Bible speaks of as Asia and we would think of as modern Turkey, then Paul received a call to cross over to Greece in Acts chapter 16. After visiting several cities and planting churches, he came to Corinth. And God spoke to Paul and told him, I have many in this city who are my people. And so Paul spent 18 months in Corinth gathering those many people that God had in the city. And he gathered them into a congregation. And when the congregation was formed, he then went and continued on his missionary journeys. Now, Paul did this because he loved those people. He brought them the gospel. He encouraged them as they lived in an ungodly place. It was not easy to be a Christian in Corinth. If you think it's not easy to be a Christian in this year, in this day, in America. Imagine what life would have been like in Corinth. And then after Paul left, something happened. Others came to Corinth, likely from Judea, and they began to assert themselves with this young congregation. Immediately, they wanted to be in leadership. They wanted to have control and they began to tell this congregation all of the things that Paul did wrong. They talked about how great they were. And they backed it up with reference letters from other people. We saw what this looked like in chapter 10 recently. They boasted about their authority. They boasted about their way of speaking. They went out of their way to commend each other. And they compared themselves to their own standard. And they talked badly about Paul. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be a Corinthian supporter of Paul in the midst of all of this? How hurt you would have been, how embarrassed you would be. And so now Paul writes to them and he asks them to bear with him in foolishness. Paul knows that it's foolish to try and boast Or to give your own credentials. But he has been left with no alternative. The gospel is at stake. And he has to defend his ministry to the Corinthians. This is very personal for Paul. Notice something in our text this morning. Paul very often uses first person singular pronouns. I. Me. my. Earlier in the letter, we saw over and over again, Paul using first-person plural pronouns. We, our. That's because Paul is emotional here. This is personal for him. He's opening up his heart to the Corinthians. He doesn't want to talk about himself, but he has to now. It's because the Corinthians have been taken in by the boasting of others. And so now Paul says, I will stoop down to that level. Bear with me a bit in this foolishness, he says. I don't want to be foolish, but that's what you're used to listening to. So I'm going to speak in a way that you can understand. It's almost like Paul is agreeing to use baby talk with the Corinthians. Now, why does Paul do this? He tells us in verse 2, For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Paul loved the Corinthians. Now those who brought the false gospel to Corinth were looking for self-promotion. They were looking for self-return. It was what they thought they could get out of the relationship. They had no thought about what it would do to the Corinthians And we can see that this happened in the church in Corinth. The false gospel brought divisions, immorality, and distrust among the members of the congregation. But Paul is thinking about others. With his true gospel, it shows his love and concern for others. Paul has an incredible love and devotion for them. It's a devotion, he says, that comes from god it is divine in its source and in its power he gives them an illustration of what this looks like he says it is as if i betrothed you to one husband now betrothal in bible days is a bit different than what we would consider engagement when someone is engaged to be married it's usually for the purpose of planning a wedding You need six months or 12 months to to find a venue, to get caterers, to get a photographer, to get all of the details set up for a wedding. But in Paul's day, to be betrothed was more like being married than being engaged. You may remember at the beginning of the gospel that when Joseph found out that Mary was with child, he determined to divorce her quietly, even though they had not been married yet it's because during the period of betrothal there was an engage- there was not just an engagement there was a commitment like a marriage and so paul says i love you like a father giving away the bride now do you feel this love for others around you is it love that drives you to tell others about your faith Is it love that drives you to tell others about Jesus? Because that is part of the true gospel. A false gospel may have some of the right words, but it doesn't love people. This is the first sign of a false gospel. It does not love its hearers. At best, they are a means to an end. It is never about them. But false gospels are also not loving in another way. Paul writes that he views the Corinthians like his daughter whom he is giving away in marriage. And to whom is he giving them? It's to only one husband. One who will care for them. One who will love them. It is Jesus. Now, one of my favorite things about performing a wedding ceremony is engaging the father of the bride. It's a joy to me even in the rehearsal. I jokingly remind the father that he only has one line, so he better not mess it up. When I ask, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Your answer is, I do, or her mother and I. Just get it out, don't mess it up, that's what you do. But that's hard for a dad. Because no dad wants to give away his daughter. If I could, and I've tried, if I could press my hand down on my daughter's head and keep her six years old forever, I would do that. It's not an exciting thing to think about giving away your daughter. But the only reason why a father gives away his daughter is because he knows she loves that man to whom she's to be married. He knows that that man loves her and will take care of her. And that's what Paul is pointing us to here this morning. He's giving the Corinthians not just to anyone, but to Jesus. Because he knows that the gospel is about love for Jesus. He knows that Jesus will take care of them. The true gospel promises love for the Lord. That was Paul's whole reason for coming to Corinth in the first place. He wanted them to love Jesus as much as he did. But the teachers of the false gospel did not. They tried to take the Corinthians' eyes off of Jesus. They said that Paul didn't have it right, that Paul had the wrong focus. They talked about the law, and they talked about ceremonies, and they talked about all the things that the Corinthians had to do more than they talked about Jesus. This is always the way with a false gospel. It's not concerned with our love for God, but rather it's concerned for itself. How they can make money. How they can be famous. If the gospel does not encourage you to love God, it is not the true gospel. So this is the first sign of a false gospel. It does not promote love either for the hearers or in the hearers for God. You might ask then, why would anyone believe a false gospel? If it is unloving, wouldn't that make it unattractive to people? What would cause people to go to it? And the answer is the second thing that we see here this morning. And that is that a false gospel deceives. It is deceptive. It actively promotes falsehoods that are designed to draw us astray. Paul picks this up in verse 3. He says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's just told us that he's like a jealous father who has betrothed his daughter to her husband. And he has done all that he can to promote that marriage. He has worked to protect their dignity. The image is of a father who protected his daughter during the engagement period. But he is afraid. He's afraid that there are others working against him. That's what false gospels do. And so Paul goes back to the very beginning, to the first incident of a false gospel. He says that the enemy deceived Eve to lead her away from God. We see in that story that even though Eve should have known, she did not. She was deceived. But the enemy knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what would result From this false gospel. And so he led Eve astray to separate her from her God. Now, one brief aside here. I want you to notice something in the text. That Paul just states the incident in the garden. He doesn't try to defend it. He doesn't think he needs to persuade you that it actually happened or that it's true. He takes it as an historical fact. A truth. That is the way we are to view the Bible. If someone ever comes to you and says, well, you know, I can take some of what's in the New Testament, but that Old Testament stuff, that's so old and it's full of stories. No one could possibly believe that. Really? Paul did. He states it as a matter of fact. And so the scripture is God breathed. It is God's word to us. We can take it as truth. Truth. And rely upon it. And this is important because Paul gives us this story to inform us that those who bring a false gospel to us today are like the devil. Paul makes a direct connection here. He says that Eve was deceived by his cunning, by the devil's cunning. It's the exact same word that Paul uses earlier in chapter 4, verse 2 where he says he is not like those who peddle the word of God, who play with the word of God, and who try and use cunning to deceive. He's equating his opponents and their work with the work of the devil. Because their design is the same. It's to lead people away from Christ. The word deceived here, describing what happened to Eve, is very intensive. There is a normal word for to be deceived, and Paul is using an intense form of this. He puts a preposition onto the verb to make it clear that Eve was completely deceived. She was lost. And this deception led to her entire mindset being lost. That's what Paul's afraid of. He says, I'm afraid that your thoughts will be led astray. And this word for thought is the exact same word that Paul has used in the previous chapter when he tells us that we should have every thought be captive to Christ. Do You see what a false gospel does? When our thoughts should be captive to Jesus, instead it leads them astray, away from Jesus. Our entire mindset, our entire worldview is not focused on Jesus Christ. False gospels want your worldview to be Christless. They don't want you to think about Jesus at work. They don't want you to think about honoring Jesus in your family, your marriage. They don't want you to think about Jesus as you're in your neighborhood. They want you to be Christless in your thoughts. And that's because a false gospel always wants to complicate and harm your relationship with Jesus. There is no better way to sniff out a false gospel than to see if it fails to make much of Jesus. If it fails to promote your relationship with Jesus... If someone comes to you with a gospel and does not make much of Jesus, it is not the true gospel. The true gospel speaks of Jesus. It glorifies Jesus and it wants you to grow and deepen in your relationship with Jesus. The true gospel is laser focused on Christ. It develops what Paul calls a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This word sincere we have seen before. It means single minded, without any ambiguity, without any second thoughts. We are to be focused on Jesus. Are you focused on Jesus Christ? Is your life and your mind concentrated on Jesus? Not on morality, not on culture. Not on politics. Not on anything else. It all starts with Jesus. Anything that distracts you from Jesus needs to go. Paul then goes on to tell us how a false gospel leads away from Jesus. It promotes a false savior. A false Jesus. After all, If I can convince you that someone or something else can save you, then you don't need Jesus. And especially in our day, Jesus is not popular. Now, the idea perhaps of a Jesus or a Savior may be popular, but not the Jesus. The one who calls us to die to self. The one who calls us to take up our cross and follow him. He is not popular in our world today. That's what's happened, Paul says. Someone has come up and proclaimed another Jesus to you, another Savior. And notice what Paul does here. Paul is an apostle. The word apostle means a sent one. The noun apostle comes from the verb to be sent or to send. And Paul tells us in verse 4 For if someone comes, and proclaims another Jesus. Someone has come who's not been sent by Jesus. They're unsent. Now this has always been a problem. Jeremiah talks about this back in Jeremiah chapter 23. The Lord declares that many are running whom I have not sent and my word is not in their mouth. And that is True today in our culture and sadly in the church at large. There are men who have come who have not been sent. And that means they do not have the gospel on their lips. They have a false gospel. Now this leads to receiving, Paul says, a different spirit. Now Paul does not mean here that the Corinthians have some kind of demonic infestation. What he means by using spirit lowercase s is that they have a false spirit that has come via a false Christ. His opponents have infected the church with a worldly spirit. It is a spirit of fear, a spirit of worldly wisdom. Are you tempted by that spirit today? I have to tell you that I see a lot of fear in professing Christians today. The wisdom and the power of the world are not our ways. We need to have a spirit of love and peace and of hope in Christ. Not only is a false gospel unloving, It is deceptive. It leads us away from Jesus and replaces him with a counterfeit that cannot save. The last thing that we see is that a false gospel is not true. That is, it does not contain the truth. It's not just deceptive in its methods, it's not just bad in its results. No, it is made up of falsehoods. It is designed to get you to believe a lie. Paul gets at this in verse 5. He says, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. He's now comparing the content Of these two Gospels his and theirs and the first part of his gospel is that he does not consider himself inferior to the others now you may say how is this not pride in Paul how is Paul not being prideful here what you have to understand is we're only getting one end of the conversation have you ever been at home when someone is talking on the phone And you can hear clearly what the person in the room is saying. But you have to guess at what's being said on the other side. Why the responses are coming from the person you can hear. That's the position that we're in here right now. You see, Paul is responding to his opponents who had been saying that they were better than anyone else. They were puffed up with pride. Remember, they were not sent by God. They just came of their own accord. And yet they still considered themselves the greatest apostles. They certainly thought that they were greater than Paul. And perhaps they thought they were even greater than Peter and John and all of the other apostles who had walked with our Lord. And so Paul fights back. He so much is disturbed by this that he either invents or he uses a sarcastic term for them. He calls them the super apostles. Now, as you can imagine, the tone of voice that Paul would use as he is speaking this, rolling his eyes. Because there's no such thing as a super apostle. The apostles were all of one rank. And of course, these so-called apostles, had never been with our Lord. They wouldn't walk on water with Peter. They didn't go to the cross with John. They weren't on the Damascus Road when Jesus appeared to Paul. And yet they believe they are greater than all. In promoting this false gospel, they were busy promoting themselves. It was all about how great they were. How well they could speak. And they promoted themselves more than they promoted Jesus. And the effect of this was that the Corinthians began to follow in their footsteps and be puffed up with pride. We see this in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 4, he talks about pride causing division in the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 8, he says that they were so prideful, they were ranking themselves according to who was eating what food. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, he tells them, you can't even celebrate the Lord's Supper because you're bowling each other over, trying to be first and the greatest. Paul is reminding us here that pride has no place in the gospel. What Paul could have said, was, I am greater than they are. Do you know why? He was. He's writing the Bible. He had seen Jesus at the Damascus Road. He had planted dozens of churches. He had gone all over the known world. But he doesn't do that. What he instead says is that he is not in the least inferior. The idea of inferior here is that he doesn't miss out. He doesn't lack anything that they have. It is a very humble statement. So, here is another way to test whether a gospel is false. Does it promote pride? Does it bring out in you a tendency to think you are better than others? The true gospel tells us that we are unworthy. That we are who we are only by grace. The true gospel makes us humble. A final aspect of the false gospel is that it focuses on man instead of on God. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that it plays to our tendency to focus on ourselves. Sin blinds us to the truth. And so our natural reaction is to think about how we can save ourselves. What are we able to do? This is the way of every other religion and philosophy on earth throughout all history. They are all, in essence, the same. About what man can do to save himself. Now, there are variations as to how man will bring that about. But only... Christianity, only the true gospel declares that salvation is found not in what we do, but in what Jesus has done. Jesus tells us that we must look away from ourselves and look to God, our Savior. In John's gospel, he tells us that the Son of Man must be lifted up, that sinners might look to him. Micah writes in his book that he will look to the Lord, who is the God of his salvation. And Paul writes to Titus that we know the gospel when our true Savior appears. That's what Paul's getting at here in verse 6. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you, in all things, This is a direct attack by Paul on his opponents. Because they had criticized Paul because he did not follow the rhetorical convention of the day. He was mocked for not having flowing words. For not being able to speak flowery phrases extemporaneously. They said he can't possibly be knowledgeable because look at how badly he speaks. He speaks like an ordinary person. Do you see what their standard for truth was? What their standard for the gospel was? It was the human ability to speak and to turn a phrase. But Paul says, even if I am not a professional speaker, that's what the word unskilled means. Even if I'm not a professional at speaking, I do have knowledge. As a matter of fact, he might say, I am a professional in the knowledge of God because I have spent every day of my life since I saw Jesus learning more and more and more about God. I make it my aim. You should know this, he writes. I've made it clear to you over and over again, in all things, in many ways, What matters, Paul is telling us, is not the human way of delivering a speech, but the content of it. The true gospel does not focus on human ability, but on knowing God. Now, more than ever, we need to be able to spot a false gospel. There are many so-called teachers running around who have not been sent by God who promote the false gospel. They have no concern for others, no concern for true, genuine love. They are not promoting love for God, but instead they deceive, bringing a substitute for Jesus. They bring a gospel of self-help, self-pride, and self-focus. There is only one gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It calls on you to know that you are a sinner. Lost, unable to fix yourself. It tells you of a marvelous Savior who gave his life so that you might know the forgiveness of sin. You don't need to do anything but believe. You don't need to memorize a secret formula. You don't need to perform all sorts of tasks. All you need to do is to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again, that you might be reunited to God. Do you believe that? That is the gospel that saves Let's pray.